Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. STAT is a national publication focused on finding and telling compelling stories about health, medicine, and scientific discovery. A recent STAT article... The Game Changers, 12 Bold Attempts to Slow the Opioid Epidemic, included a segment portraying insurers as one of the biggest roadblocks to getting addiction treatment. Here today to share why and what can be done about it is Lisa Landau, the bureau chief from the New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's office. So Lisa, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very glad to be able to speak with you today. So Lisa, your office identified insurers themselves as a major roadblock to treatment and ultimate recovery in New York. Why is that? You know, we are a a bureau that has a complaint mechanism. So we hear from consumers on a regular basis as to what uh, are the issues du jour that, uh, that block access to care. And I would say it's a combination of factors that uh, made our uh, focus shift over to health plans. And the combination was that we were clearly facing an addiction crisis uh, having to do with opioids. And that was clear in 2012, even, you know, even though we all know that it's, uh, it's increased. Uh, the problem has increased over these years. But back in 2012, uh, knowing that this crisis was uh, burgeoning, uh, we took stock of complaints about uh, lack of access to uh, to care, really by virtue of health plan denial. We looked at the laws that were out uh, ready to be enforced. So there are both federal and state laws that are relatively recent. Uh, the federal law is 2008, and the state law is actually 2006. Uh, that require health plans to cover uh, mental health and behavioral health, including substance abuse treatment, on an equal footing uh, with medical surgical coverage. And uh, we decided that it was time to take a look at how the health plans were um, meeting out the benefits and uh, really focused on some of the largest providers in New York State. Uh, Using those laws, we investigated, saw that there were uh, pretty uh, pretty significant differences in denial rates between uh, 
mental health, behavioral health, and medical surgical health. And with respect to addiction treatment, 50% denial rates. Um, so we first went after health plans to really change their behavior uh, with respect to these, these denials. And we next, uh, after tackling probably five or so plans uh, with memberships uh, really in, in the millions in New York State, uh, we turned to uh, restrictions on specific uh, medical you know, medical or medically assisted treatments, so access to the very drugs that can um, make it so that you can get a very straightforward evidence-based treatment for your, uh, your opioid addiction. We saw that there were plans that were putting up roadblocks um, in, in, in the face of um, evidence that these treatments worked uh, for patients to get the care. So again, um, looking at you know how how patients and people with these profound uh, problems were 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 really getting the roadblocks from health plans, and and we have a power power with laws to be able to uh, raise these issues with the health plans and uh, and resolve them, and and that is really a piece of of what our office uh, has done with respect to access to treatment. So let me go back to those denials. Let me start there. As far as 50% denial rate, what were the common reasons for that? And also, how were you able to overcome that? Well, I think, you know, what struck us in, in looking, you know, broadly at the denial rates and then looking very, very specifically at the individual denials, um, you know, is that Many, many of, of the denials were uh, were boilerplate, so they were really um, uh, clearly speaking to us, you know, uh, in a way that kind of showcased that these were not these were not really thoughtfully uh, thoughtfully prepared documents that were going to match the the person's. Uh, you know, symptoms with the, the specific criteria, which is really what uh, the plans are required to do. Um, so, uh, you know, we went broad and we went very detailed. So we required, you know, in, in a number of our agreements that the plans um, have to ensure that they are not issuing boilerplate letters, that they have to provide uh, rationale to the member to explain, you know, why this particular person wasn't meeting the criteria. And we also saw, just to say, we, we saw at the time, you know, flat-out exclusions of certain levels of treatment. And at the time, 2011, 12, 13, um, residential treatment for eating disorders uh, categorically excluded. Uh, which we viewed as, you know, blatantly uh, contradicting our mental health parity laws since in all of these plans, skilled nursing was, uh, was not excluded on the, on the medical surgical side. So how effective has that been? Well, what we've seen over these ensuing years, so many of these settlements 
uh, took place in ultimately in 2013 through 15, I would say, and we're watching very carefully uh, to see that the denial rates are uh, decreasing, and they are. So from 50% denial rates, 40 to 50% denial rates for substance abuse treatment, we're now seeing, you know, more in the order of, you know, 5 to 10% perhaps. Wow, that's, uh, and we're seeing that's huge. far fewer far fewer complaints coming to us uh, through our complaint uh, helpline. That's huge. And how does that compare? I, I don't know if it's apple. Maybe it's apples and oranges. But just curious, how does that compare to just a standard medical procedure? The denial rates is that pretty consistent? Five to ten percent. That that becomes consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, so now let's move along to the uh, medication or medicated assisted treatment and what you've done there. Sure, you know I uh, I would say that uh, I have to give credit to the specific uh, look at this issue to uh, physicians that I met with actually in the western part of the state who raised this to our attention, and that's part of our job, of course, is to. Um, meet with, you know, providers, consumer groups to really uh, get a better understanding of what what's out there as um, as a potential problem. And um, in this instance, a doctor who uh, is a substance abuse specialist uh, was letting us know that there were certain plans that were making it very difficult for the doctor to prescribe medication-assisted treatment. Uh, for people with addiction. So it could be, you know, a few hours of additional paperwork and also a, a wait time for the plan to approve, um, you know, the, the treatment going forward. And, and that may seem somewhat minimal because I, 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 would, I would venture to say that um, fairly regularly, and ultimately, the medication-assisted treatment regime was approved. But in the meantime, the person who's ready to have that treatment is at the doctor's office. The doctor is specially certified uh, by the federal government to be able to prescribe this medication. So it's not everyone who can prescribe it. This person with an addiction issue is in the doctor's office, ready for treatment. The doctor's certified to give it. And the health plan then, um, you know, delays the process uh, for the doctor to to actually get this medication to the to the patient, and um, and so that that to us was a real you know a real problem, and uh, we thought that you know once we had some examples of uh, you know what the issues were that were befalling these. Uh, physicians that we would move forward to look into, you know, into the issue whether you know there was a, men a, a mental health parity uh, violation um, and what we we could do to, to fix it. So that's that's really the the genesis of uh, of those really two national settlements that we entered into with two major plans. So getting people into treatment when they're ready is critically important, and your window is just so small, we've learned. I mean, they're going through this chaotic process 
in many cases, several times in a single day. So hours can make all the difference in the world. So it really strikes me that there was, they put, the insurers put hours of additional paperwork in the way of treatment. Right, and that that was exactly it. And I think anyone who knows anything about addiction and uh, and the challenges that that face people with with that illness, really, um, when someone is, it takes it takes some time often for that person to be ready to be treated, and and you want to be ready, or the provider certainly wants to be ready to treat um, if that person is is. But finally, ready, you know, to go that route. So you don't want to delay it, or you may lose the opportunity. So, how did you go about getting the pre-authorization lifted on the requirement for those major insurers? And I, I believe the major insurers are Cigna and Anthem. That's correct. Some ways, um, shedding light on a problem can result in a change. And in this instance, uh, we used our power of subpoena, which, which we have in New York State, to investigate um, both entities as to really, you know, what the justification was for this prior authorization and whether there was anything that um, that they could show was its mirror image, perhaps, on, on the medical side of the equation. And, you know, the plans came up short. I, I would just say that there was no real justification that was evidence-based for restricting these treatments. Um, and I would say that at least in one instance, the plan was very willing once alerted to the issue uh, with perhaps the power of a, of a government enforcer uh, showing the problem to the, the, the health plan, uh, very willing to um, to make the change. Uh, another plan took a little while longer, uh, but I think, you know, once you put the question to entities like plans as to what the real justification is for a particular policy, in this instance it was, you know, paperwork and, um, you know, a, a long process relative you know, to other medications to um, to to be able to access this uh, this treatment, uh, and you know the the plans could have really come up with an evidence based reason why they were going down this road. Um, and interestingly, of course, the the direct parallel for uh, a prior authorization for addiction medication is, well, what do you have for opioids as a pain reliever? Is there prior authorization for opioids as a pain reliever? If your worry is black market and that these are going to get out on the street, that Suboxone is going to get out on the street, but Oxycodone isn't. So, I mean, there was a little bit of, um, I, I, you know, I would venture to say it was, um, maybe a fresh look at how disparate uh, the policies were. So we, health plans are not at all uh, restricting access to opioids. They certainly weren't at that particular moment seven months ago. Um, but they 
They were restricting access to the treatment for opioid addiction. Um, I think, you know, I think there was a, a fairly qu a quick understanding that this was a bit of a problem for them. Wow. That puts it in just really uh, simple terms to wrap your head around and puts it so basic and, and it makes the issue really glaring there, the inconsistency, right? Absolutely. It's brilliant, brilliant. So how long did it take to, to get that pre-off uh, taken care of then and, and done away with? You know, I have, to, I have to say it was a fairly, in the scheme of investigations and resolutions, um, you know, it was maybe uh, four, four or five months or, you know, maybe a little bit less for Cigna and maybe a little bit longer for um, Anthem. Uh, but I would say relatively short uh, compared to many other investigations uh, that, we, that we work on here. And, um, you know, I do credit the health plans in turning around quickly, recognizing this as an issue and resolving it um, on a national basis. Oh, they address this on a national basis. That was my next question. Is this state by state or national in this particular instance? In this instance, the plans were willing to, uh, to do a national uh, agreement um, and take away the, the restriction across the country. And I'm sure that's you know, in based uh, on their own concerns that they that they could perhaps uh, have some uh, risk out outside of New York State, and I think they recognize that it made sense given what we're all facing. I think as a as a nation uh, with respect to the opioid crisis. What advice would you give other states about how to pursue similar policy changes in their own backyard? Well, I, I think one is, is to be proactive, to be looking for these issues. If, if this is, um, you know, if this rises to the priority level, I know certainly there are many states that are facing these issues pretty dramatically. So there are ways that, that uh, attorneys general can work with their insurance departments to try to get a better understanding of what is covered and what is not. Um, medication-assisted treatment is certainly, you know, a very discrete area, and and so certainly on this front, it would be um, very doable, I think, for um, for enforcers to look at this particular issue. I think it gets a little more complicated to to look at sort of coverage for substance abuse, residential treatment, inpatient treatment, those kinds of things. That that arena is is probably more um, more something that would require a complaint system to know a little bit more about what uh, citizens are are finding, you know, on the other end of health plans. It's harder for a, for an AG's office to kind of get get at that without complaints coming across uh, the bow. Sure, but the approach that you've laid out on two different fronts is, sounds very, very effective and, and very, very doable. I mean, it's incredible that you got that done in four to five months. I mean, that's that's huge. And it would seem to me that other states absolutely could very easily emulate your fine work. Well, thank you. I, you know, it, it's one of, you know, many things that certainly, um, you know, if we can press forward to, to make sure that 
towards that, for sure. So, Lisa, are there any other game changers, I'll call them, in the opioid epidemic that you've come across that you'd care to share with us? Well, I think, you know, in our office under Eric Schneiderman's leadership, we've been tackling this from a number of angles. So, no sooner than uh, the AG uh, became AG, he had been a, a state legislator, a state senator previously. So, he was very committed to policy solutions and has been over his tenure. So, one of the very first uh, efforts in, in regards to opioid uh, abuse was the I-STOP legislation that's now been uh, really heralded and copied across the country, which is a real-time reporting of um, opioid prescriptions so that folks who are looking for additional prescriptions of opioids cannot doctor shop from one to another. Ah. So this was, this was really about the supply side. Yeah. And um, ensuring that there were systems in place such that doctors who want to do the, the, the right thing, they want to treat pain, they want to, um, you know, be, be listening to the patient before them, but may not really know that this person has seen the doctor across the street just, you know, four days ago and who got, you know, a month's supply of, of painkillers. So... The I-STOP legislation um, was really a, a, the first effort that the office made to try to kind of stave off um, over-prescribing. Another effort that the office was involved with was the distribution using criminal forfeiture funds of naloxone kits um, across the state uh, to, you know, they are costly, uh, so the office made these kits available to police departments uh, who applied for them. So that was certainly another important area that the office has been involved in. And then we have a, a Medicaid fraud and control unit that works at getting, you know, getting at the, the pill mill kinds of doctors and, um, you know, a criminal division that works, uh, you know, to, uh, to stave off, you know, criminal groups that are involved in distribution of opioids and heroin. So, you know, many different angles to try to address this, this issue. As far as the database is concerned, um, can you see a time where, because uh, there's many states out there now that have that, including our state, our, in our state, the state of Ohio, it's called ORS, um, where physicians and pharmacists can go and look up a particular prescription, a particular, uh, you know, patient who is being prescribed for, I should say, to make sure that they're not doctor shopping. Um, so can you see the time when states will all share that information back and forth? Because sometimes you have border states where it's two different databases and they don't talk to one another. Yeah, I think that that is definitely on, on the list, the to-do list. Um, and I think some states are already... Um, trying to uh, agree to arrangements, cross-border arrangements, um, so that exactly what you're um, suggesting doesn't doesn't happen. So I think it's happening regionally, and then, of course, the question is, you know, shouldn't it happen nationally as well? And I think, I think certainly um, many in this, in this realm would agree that that would be the best thing. So 
Let me ask you something. Has the Trump administration put enough funding into the budget to make a difference in the opioid epidemic, in your view, Lisa? You know, I, I, it's hard to, to comment specifically because, I, you know, I'm very much focused on, on New York and less focused on the national numbers. But, you know, certainly there was a, a huge amount of um, effort uh, under the previous administration to, to fund what is really, you know, becoming clear, clearly, um, you know, a priority and necessary services for people with uh, addiction issues. I mean, we, we have to make sure that we provide treatment to the, you know, the, the huge number of people and the increased number of people who have an addiction problem. And so there certainly were <clears throat> funding streams that were um, established uh, towards the end of the Obama administration to support um, increased access to treatment. And I and, you know, I, I think we all are concerned that that uh, support is not necessarily going to continue um, in the current administration. You know, if, if part of the evidence is that Medicaid is going to be scaled back so dramatically, I don't know, think any of us can feel confident about appropriate amounts of funding being directed to opioids, opioid treatment. Yeah. Well, I, I really want to thank you for your time. I know you're a little short on time, so I'll just, uh, what, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and about what your office has learned, Lisa? Well, I think that, you know, what we have learned and the approach that we take is that there's no one cure for this problem. I think it's uh, a multifaceted problem with multifaceted ways to address the problem. There's no one, unfortunately, one silver bullet. Um, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak, and uh, we have to, you know, do what we can from our various uh, positions to curb prescribing in our states, you know, through I-STOP, through um, limitations on numbers of pills that uh, doctors prescribe, you know, for uh various uh, operations, et cetera, so that people don't have 90-day supplies in their medicine cabinets. Uh, we have to make sure that health plans, um, we hold their feet to the fire to, if they provide coverage, and that coverage is supposed to be for um, mental health and behavioral health as well as medical surgical health, then they need to do that. Um, we need to make naloxone more available. We have to watch... Uh, Again, watch the doctor prescribing. We have to look at how the distributors pay, play a role in, in this um, issue. I think there are so many different uh, ways that offices like ours and other offices can, can actually step up and do some important work. And we're always standing ready to, to be available to offices who want to talk specifics with us. Well, once again, Lisa, thank you today for your time. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you, and um, I'm glad that we had the opportunity today. We've been visiting with Lisa Landau, the bureau chief from the New York Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman's office. Lisa and her team have done some amazing work in making treatment more readily available through insurance providers uh, that prior to this were denying 50% of the claims and had a uh, arduous pre-authorization process for MAT treatment. 
and they're making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.